What happens when the right people connect? At MITRE, breakthrough technology advances, people fulfill their passions, diversity fuels innovation, and our way of life thrives. From health to transportation and global security, cyber and AI, to space and back again, there's no higher calling than making the world a safer place. Let's connect at MITRE.org careers. That's M-I-T-R-E dot slash careers. There is a place in Montgomery County, Maryland, where inspiration and curiosity is transformed into knowledge, accomplishment, and success. UMBC at the University's at Shady Grove, the county's only public institution, where you can complete a four-year degree. Here, our reputation and partnerships with top employers in the area will put you on a successful path after graduation. Grow, belong, and achieve with UMBC at the University's at Shady Grove in Rockville. Apply by June 1st at shadygrove.umbc.edu. And welcome to another episode of Nerds of the Holy Grail with Mike and Travis. And we have an interview today with the founder of SHP Comics, uh, Sean Hansworth. How are you? I am well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, we enjoy uh, reading your two comics that you sent us of Woodstake and Eurotech. I believe you have one more, but I have not been able to read yet of The Killing Machine. Was there a first one? Yes, there is a, another comic that we were looking into, The uh, the Hand of God. I believe it was The Killing Machine series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. yeah and I will get that out to you. And uh, I got issue two of Woodstake and issue two of The Killing Machine coming out in oh, like awesome. the next month and a half or so. So, yeah. Yeah, we'd love to do a review on it for you. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That would I, be awesome. We, uh, we also have a couple questions. Uh, we were reviewing a couple videos of yours where you were looking at some past movies and some past uh, series that really, you know, gave you the inspiration to get into Eurotech, to get into the Woodstake and the Hand of God series. And uh, I believe some of the material that you uh, saw that inspired you was like Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, Blade Runner, that style. Yeah. So when I was a kid, um, I was born in 1966. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was a kid, the uh, the old Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers serials from the 30s were still on TV. Um I don't know when they finally drifted off of TV, but um, they were pretty amazing, you yeah. know, for the day. I mean, the special effects were, it was kind of like a sparkler in the back of a ship that was clearly <laughs> going around in a circle, you know. But, um, but yeah, no, they were really, really compelling. And I, I remember watching those as a kid. It was funny because sci-fi really um, exploded, obviously, in the 70s with Star Wars. After Star Wars, everything was sci-fi but um but you know i mean star trek was on tv all the time mm -hmm. um when i was a kid and space 1999 was on t tv and um yeah i just kind of was really uh taken with all that sci-fi when i was a kid um i was you know watching that and then the other hand um kind of reading all the fantasy reading the J.R. tolkien lord of the rings and and all that kind of stuff so um yeah that was that was my uh my my childhood viewing, you know. Um, so you enjoyed the world building in those. Is why you I really did. got you into it. I very it. much did. Okay, because yeah. I could see a little bit of when your 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 first two comics you sent to us. It's definitely world builders right off the bat. And it'll start off with the past with the wood stake. How they showed like what they were doing before the kind of atmosphere you get. The people that are in it are very quick to the point. You know, kind of a little bit of hints about what they are right off the bat too. And um, I just. I kind of like the overall tone in that one because it, it, it sets it off like it's going to be like 
heavy horror, but then it goes right into a little bit of like, hey, lightheartedness <laughs> right off the end at the end of the first one. Yeah, I, I'm sort of pegging it as a comedy of horrors. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, um, you know, so I had the idea of a vampire descending on the Woodstock Music Festival in 1969. And, uh, you know, it just, the comedy just kind of popped out at me, you know, um, of, uh, you know, sort of in the style of Shaun of the Dead, where you could have something that was both really scary, but was having a lot of fun culturally. Yeah. We, were, um, we were watching one of your other interviews, and you said Wes Craven's uh, vampire um, movie, and as well as the um, Shaun of the Dead. was like an inspiration. Yeah, yeah. and so, um, but like you said, what I, so I had the idea, and I started writing it, and I was jumping right into the festival, um, but then I was like, you know, why is there a vampire in upstate New York, right? Yeah, exactly. Why? <laughs> right. yeah. And uh, so I wanted to go back and, uh, you know, start it a generation before. And uh, there's actually more. Uh, uh, talk about world building. Like, there's a lot more backstory. I have a lot of backstory about the vampire and how he ends up coming to upstate New York in the 1930s, which I'm going to save for later on. But I at least wanted to, um, you know, uh, start off um, introducing. Yeah, you got to catch him first, you know. I, I gotta yeah, catch you got to get him exactly. into it first, and then you build it up from there, which is what I got from that, because you, you can see that you want to get a little bit of action in there, a little bit of story set up, so everyone wants to read it, and then you go into the backstory. I like it. Yeah, yeah, and we're going to get into the comedy. I mean, there is uh, a little bit in it. It's funny, because I've been telling people it's a comedy of horrors, but the first issue is not, you know, no, all that no, funny. No, no, no. When when we get to the festival and, you know, when the vampire, you know, feeds on someone who's just dropped LSD and Mm -hmm. starts tripping and, you know, all of those kinds of things start coming in, there will be more more comic elements. But I I also want it to be, you know, really scary. Um, And I'm a huge Bram Stoker fan. So, um, you know, it's kind of class. What I was calling it originally was classic vampires, classic rock. You know, okay. um, it's very much a, a vampire in the model of Bram Stoker, and I didn't really do okay. much of the vampire myth, but um, but kind of just brought that style of vampire. Yeah, he's been around for a stuff. long time, basically. Exactly. Okay, yeah. I gotcha. And this is the first time he's experienced something like this in in the history of the world, basically, <laughs> that he's been alive. Okay. <laughs> exactly. But yeah. you know what's great about it, uh, having a vampire is just kind of the ultimate cynic, right? He's been around mm-hmm. forever. He's seen yeah, everything. Exactly. He's uh, he sees, you know, kind of the ridiculousness of this peace and love ethos, um, you know, and just kind of cuts right through it, um, literally and figuratively. So. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I like the uh, the aspect of the sheriff in the town when he's speaking with Doc and they're driving back and forth about how there's just, you know, hundreds and thousands of hippies everywhere. Like, <laughs> not only are they having to deal with you know, these, these, uh, wolves and the vampires and, you know, now, having to also deal crowds. with, you know, a group of people that within their culture, within their countryside, like they don't like whatsoever. Yeah. And it, you know, it's really interesting. If you look at the history of the festival, um, I mean, it was, it was, it was really kind of shotgun because they had to change their location, you know, like three or four months before the festival started, um, and, uh, they really didn't know what to expect in terms of numbers. Um, you know, they were telling the townspeople would be 50,000 people and, and then they thought it would be a hundred and, and it ended up being over 400,000 kids. Yeah. Um, yeah. And hippies descending on a traditionally, you know, farming community, a traditional farming community. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, that, I wanted to get that in there. I wanted to have that 
there's a community meeting, you know, where, where the, where that scene takes place, where, you know, the people in the town are, are sounding off about their concerns about the festival. Cause, because that was a big part of the festival was, was just, you know, uh, this incredible, um, in influx of, uh, of young hippies into these really traditional towns. And you're going to have your uh, vampire cut through the middle of that chaos, which is nice. Honestly, exactly. I, I think you're being, yeah. I think you'll be very successful with that one. <laughs> Um, yeah, and the fun thing is, there's so many people that you know. I've I did a lot of research mm-hmm. on the festival, and I actually timed everything um, so that um, you know it, it takes place very clearly between Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And depending on what time of day it is, you know what what rock group is playing. Fo- you know, I follow the exact schedule. Um, and there was really some fun stuff, like you know, on on Saturday night, there's kind of a big big horror scene and i looked at the playlist and it was credence clearwater singing bad moon on the rise um you know so there's just there's just some great um you know dovetailing of the music and uh and the festival but i really i really did try to um stick with the details of the festival and get all of the details right um in terms of you know personalities that were there and you know the, the musical acts that were being that were playing you know playing at the at a given time that sort of thing See, I had a feeling actually that you did do that. I, because I, um, I was re- researching you a little bit before this, and I, I seem like he seems like the guy to do like a little bit more research onto uh, something like that, especially if it took place like it's an actual event. So it's nice to hear that you actually were gonna, you know, plan it out by the day what music was actually playing, and then you're gonna add your story into it, which is great. Honestly, that's exactly what I was I was thinking you were gonna say. <laughs> so um, good, good. I'm glad yeah, to hear that. Yeah, because because uh, me and him have been you know talking back and forth about how to you know how to uh, how to approach you know the interview too, because you know be honest, we we were we're a little bit nervous as you could tell. <laughs> But um, me too. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, you know, that's exactly what I thought, and I, I do appreciate, and I feel like that's an underappreciated thing too. When you add something that's actually taken place before doing the research ahead of time and adding it intricate into your story, so it makes it more unique and more interesting. So um, it definitely adds a lot of weight to like all yeah. history. Yeah, exactly. And I really, I really, that, that's that's a that's a subgenre that I don't think gets enough attention in mm-hmm. today's age, especially in comics or even mangas. Is that I love to see you know a person's take on like you know what if a major event you know transpired differently? Yeah. Or you add like a mystical sci-fi or fantasy to something that actually to happened. Yeah. I really, really like that, and uh, there's there's a couple TV shows that do that, like the Man in the High Castle, I believe, which is like an alt yeah. history of you know what occurred during World War II with the United States and Russia, and you know what Hitler was doing with Germany, and um, that was one thing that I really appreciated going into this is that it was grounded, but it also had a good fantasy element. And looking into the artwork that Woodsake had was uh one of the highlights that I had reviewing this comic. I, I love the art style that this artist had used. I liked how not everything was broken down into a specific quadrant of the page that he had characters that were in the foreground and, you know, coming out at you. It had that 3D stylization and I thought that was really, really unique. Was that something that you were wanting to go for when you were explaining how you wanted this comic drawn? Yeah, well, you know what's interesting? So I, I originally wrote Woodstake as a, a screenplay. Um, and um, and then at a certain point, I for, for a variety of reasons, um, 
mostly that I just wanted to get it made. Um, and, uh, I wanted to sort of, you know, I just want to get the story out there. And, and, uh, and I was a comic book reader and I was like, this is crazy. I'm just going to do this, uh, on my own. Um, and so I, I just looked around, I looked for artists for a long time. And, um, for this comic, I wanted something kind of special. Um, I didn't want, you know, sort of the traditional, um, you know, ink and coloring style of a comic book. Um, and when I saw Philippe's art, uh, Philippe Kroll, um, online, I was just like, oh yeah, this is the guy for this piece. Like I can't imagine anyone doing it, but him. Um, and I contacted him and, and he's been great. And he's a young guy. He's really just getting started. Um, I don't know if he's done a, you know, a full comic series before. So I really hope this brings, uh, you know, attention to him as well. Cause he's really talented. Um, and, uh, he's been really great to work with. Um, and uh, I agree. So he does, he does 3d modeling and then he paints. Um, and so, um, you know, what's fun about that is, um, we often talk, uh, I often, you know, talk a little bit about camera angles, you know, where we're looking at the scene from what the perspective is. And because he's building these 3d models, you know, we can kind of move things around and, and find the angle that, that we like. And he will often, you know, just roll up on top of characters you're looking down on them, or um, he always finds interesting ways of of sort of framing things, um, you know, to to, uh, to to tell the story. And like you said, people pop out of the frame. And um, the other great thing about Philippe is honestly, you know, he's he's really interested in kind of learning and growing and getting better with each comic. So in um, issue two, you know, he's gotten a little freer with his brushstrokes. Um, and, um, I think, uh, and, and, um, we've worked a little bit on contrast cause I think we both felt a little bit, some of the panels got muddy where some of the details got lost. Um, so we're really working, um, together on each issue. You know, I want the writing to get a little tighter and the art, art to get a little better so that as you read the story, it gets more and more compelling. Um, and he's really willing to do that. He's willing to pretty much do anything. The, um, the tricky part is to get, uh, him, uh, you know, he grew up in Brazil. So when he first did Hate Street in San Francisco, it it kind of looked like downtown Vienna or something, you know, oh, had a very Euro- gotcha. European feel to it. Yeah. And I was like, no, these lights are wrong, you know, mm. and this is, you know, whatever. It's and okay. let's put a whole bunch yeah. of fog in here so that we don't have to get too much into the details of the buildings. Um, yeah. yeah. But he's really willing to uh, to kind of, you know, learn and adapt and change things. And he's just been great to work with. Now, let me ask you this though. So for each book, you've it looks like you found a different artist. So is that is that going to be like your norm for your other series that you want to do? Because I'm assuming you're not going to just do three ever. You're probably going to do a couple more, or you want to keep going. Yeah, yeah. So I've got like it's funny. I've got like eight or nine stories ready to okay. go, but I've just I've got to pace myself in terms of I don't want to get too far ahead of myself or too spread out. But yeah, the the great thing about not being able to draw. <laughs> yeah. Is that, I, I um, suffer from that too. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. It's a terrible illness. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, but it, it means that each series has its own style and personality. Um, and I really like that as a writer, like, um, you know, if I, if I was a one man band and I was writing and drawing, then everything would have, you know, kind of my feel to it. But, um, I like that I can be in different genres and have really different artistic, um, uh, you know, feels or different artists uh, creating these different comic books and different genres, and and that gives a lot of variety to it. So I really like that. Yeah, each art style is going to attract a different type of reader too, which will, wouldn't read normally your other ones. But once they see that you helped wrote, you know, and founded this one comic, they're like, well, let me read his other ones. 
you know, and that helps you get into other artists that they never even would have read, you know, because they don't know that art style. So, I hope so. Yeah. yeah. I, I really hope, I, I hope and believe, you know, that, that the writing is, is going to be really good with each subsequent issue. We're going to, the story's going to get deeper. And um, I, so I, I hope that, that the readers of SHP really appreciate both the diversity of the art and the quality of the writing and that they're willing to come along with for the ride. Like maybe they don't yeah. typically read in this genre, but because it's, you know, exactly. it's, it's refreshing. And they like the other ones. Yeah. yeah. You're offering a chance for them to open up their horizons by getting them in with one book. Let's say they look through all your stuff and like, Oh, I like the art style on that. Let me read that. They read it. They get into it. They're like, okay, what else did this guy do? And they go into all the other ones, you know, and then it opens them up to more artists. So I think it's a good idea, honestly. Uh, when That's I was looking at your stuff. Yeah. And um, one one question though about your other books is it were you looking at are you going to do independent stories each one independent or are you going to do like a shared universe? Each one is independent, yeah. Okay. So there will be no SHP cinematic universe. Yeah. Okay, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, because I really and these, um, I mean, Aerotech could be fairly open ended because I think there's a lot of places we could go with that. Mm-hmm. Um, Woodstake is going to be seven issues, um, six or seven issues. Um, and we're going to wrap up part one of the story. And then the sequel, um, that I've actually written quite a bit of is, uh, Woodstake 99, which is the, <laughs> which was the, the, the nasty Woodstock, you know, in, uh, that came 30 years later. And that's where the story's going to, you know, really finish. Um, okay. so, um, so that's going to be a two, book series of about six or seven issues each and that'll be completely done in standalone um and then the killing machine same kind of thing i'm planning out right now two books of about five or six issues each that will tell a fairly complete story um so yeah there's not any crossover at this point you know it's funny when i when i think about and talk about marvel um it's great well number one they have like 50 60 years of material to work with but number two everything is superheroes, right? And so, um, or super villains. Mm -hmm. And it's always great to combine superheroes or combine, you know, villains, everything back to, you know, uh, Godzilla versus Megalon, you know, (laughs) with with Toho studios had all their monsters and then they could combine them in different ways. And, um, you know, so, um, but I, I, I'm not looking for that. I think my stories are going to be more, um, you know, like one, two books and then done. Okay. Well, that's good. That's I mean that that's just we were looking for because I was looking at all three of them and they're each one is unique in their own way. So I was assuming that you're most likely going to do independent stories, but I figured I'd ask it, you know, just to see what, what direction we're going to be expecting in the future. Um, and I've seen that you had successful Kickstarters. Either they either met their goal completely or went above and beyond it. Yeah, we've done really well um, on Kickstarter, and uh, I have to say, Kickstarter is really like the lifeblood of independent comics right now. Yeah, um, it's yeah, it's just the best way. I mean, there, there's no way I could have raised that amount of money just selling comic books or digitally or, or any other way. And uh, you know, so the last one we did, you know, we had about 189 backers, which is terrific, um, and enough to you know almost pay for the art for that book. Um, so I'm really hoping the goal right now is to do three, three Kickstarter campaigns a year and um, to, you know, hopefully by next year be bringing in enough with Kickstarter that I can really pay, you know, the artists and print the books completely and become somewhat self-sufficient um, and uh, and then, you know, continue to grow because I have more stories I'd really like to put out there. Um, but yeah, the, the thing about the Kickstarters is it's a lot of work. Um, 
you know, you, you really have to do a lot of work before your campaign starts because the 30 days go pretty quickly. Yeah. But I think as we build that audience, um, you know, hopefully they'll continue to grow um, and it will get easier. Like, oh, another one by SHP Comics and people will come back. I really, you know, I hope we can build something with that. We were looking at your uh, Kickstarters were progressively getting more and more backed. Were you finding uh, it easier to put out your ideas and to put out your thoughts into what you wanted to make and have people accept that? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I say the other thing is that um, the artist for Aerotech, um, Jeffrey Kroshek, um he has a really good network um, and he's a pretty experienced guy. He's got, you know, a bit of a fan base and um, he really worked um, the Kickstarter as well, doing a lot of social media posting and, you know, a lot of stuff. Whereas um, Philippe and the artist for the killing machine, Michelle, they just don't have the same kind of social media presence and they're not. Um, so the first one, you know, for the killing machine was all me um and uh as a first time creator but the second one like we we actually almost tripled the number of backers which yeah, was terrific yeah we did see uh, that yeah a lot of that was um was i think me having more experience we got repeat backers people who had backed the killing machine and liked it and then we got jeff bringing in his his audience so um yeah it it's just kind of like slowly you find the shp readers out there and um and hopefully the product you're delivering is good enough that they become, you know, sort of loyal readers and are willing to come back for the next Kickstarter. So that's going to be the real number for the next one is how many repeat backers did we get from Aerotech? Yeah, I, I like the um, the art style too on it. Um, like you said, uh, Jeffrey, was it? Was it yeah, artist? Jeffrey Kroshek is Yeah, name. we looked him up too, and he definitely has a lot more followers. And I've looked up your previous two artists as well. Could not find anything really, so I was assuming that, you know, they were probably brand new, getting started. But, you know, both very good art styles, very clean and unique. So, um, was it right off the bat, though, uh, Eurotech was inspired by what exactly? So, yeah, so for the benefit of your readers who don't know... Um, Aerotech is about a Silicon Valley startup that uh, that's uh, trying to produce a you know an actual autonomous sex robot, mm -hmm. um, and so it's uh, you know I've been joking it's kind of like The Office or Silicon Valley, um, you know it's that sort of style of humor but with sex, sex robots. So it's you know got the seventeen plus. Um, uh, we were sort of you know, one of the reviews said you know this is your next uh, HBO late night series because it <laughs> you know it's funny but it's uh it's you know not not safe for work um but uh, you know I work in software development um that's my day job mm -hmm. and um I think just sitting in on on endless software design meetings and um and you know agile methodology you know uh software meetings um somehow the idea just came in like what if all of this crazy process was applied to actually creating, um, uh, you know, a sex robot. I worked in, I worked a little bit in AI too. So in language recognition and other things, and the, uh, the complexity of the prom problem is enormous. And then you start thinking about, well, how do you actually, if you have an actual physical robot, human-like robot, you know, how would you debug that, right? Like, there's only so much you can do in the computer, and then you're, you'd have to set it loose on an actual human yeah. being to see what happens. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that leads to some of the humor of the first scene. So, um, you know, the thing, the thing that Jeff and I talked about a lot was <clears throat> um, we tried to do that, that first four pages or so, which is the 
the uh, the sex robot sort of malfunctioning on on the poor tester. Um, we tried to do it in a way where more was implied than shown, and where you know it was done from a sense of uh, with a sense of humor and not with a sense of you know kind of. Um, it's not trying to be pornographic or it's not trying to arouse the yeah. viewer. Um, and we really tried to hit that, that sweet spot of, um, of actually, you know, drawing what's taking place in the scene, but, um, but not being really uh, explicit about it and also playing up the humor. So, you know, we talked a lot about the robot, um, you know, being, you know, just kind of slightly off, you know, um, like, like the face just not quite being right. The yeah. skin being a little too elastic when they shut it down, it kind of falls down at an odd angle with its leg, leg splayed out at, you know, in a non-human angle. So, um, you know, rather than making the robot like just sexy, sexy, we were trying to make the robot, you know, a little terrifying and a little unreal. Um, because if you, you know, if you were to actually try to manufacture something to, to do this, it would, it would have to have, have a kind of rubbery skin it, it, it would be very it would be a very weird process so i just really started to enjoy the the idea of what would it actually take to build this and test this and then to bring all of the uh you know my experience uh in, in actual software development and kind of the absurdity of uh uh that you can fall into sometime with these development teams that sense of humor uh into the comic and so that's where it came from you definitely came out really strong on that aspect because as i'm reading it and i'm seeing how the robot starts malfunctioning and then you just see the programmers in the room and they're like oh god like you know we've been working on this for so long and they're like oh what about the lube and it's like well yeah the lube's giving issues it's like no we need more and you know I've been in meetings where you'll you'll always have a group of people that are arguing on the small little specifics of why something went down, like why something went wrong or, you know, what they needed to do or how they needed to do it. And everybody's always constantly pointing fingers like it's not it's not a priority of mine or it's not a, a thing that I, it, you know, I was in charge of. And um, I really like the dynamic that the uh, guy, the, the character who was the test subject had with Rick. I thought yeah. there was a really strong dynamic when he walks into the room and, you know, he, he's all gung ho, like, you know, I, I need a raise and I need dental and I need benefits. And then the guy's like, yeah, yeah, you're going to get all that. Never. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm reading that and I'm laughing and I'm like, this is, this is, this has really good, subtle comedy. Like if if you're just reading it to read it and you're looking at it at like face value, you, you're, you're not really, getting everything from that and to like take your time and especially like you were saying you coming coming from a programming and computer background like uh, a large portion of that and i also really like how you you showed a lot of the dynamic of the office itself like how you were saying the office of silicon valley yeah definitely and and that's that was a little bit of a weird thing like where you know the comic starts with a bang as it were um you know, the first four pages, but then the next 20 pages are pretty much all just office, right? There's no, mm -hmm. um, and, and so the meat of the comic is characters and, um, and kind of the journey of the protagonist, Samantha through, you know, who's like a young, um, you know, really accomplished, you know, manager who's been thrown into this almost unwinnable situation with, you know, management that's, that's, uh, you know, uh, out to just kind of cover its own ass and the tech team that 
um, you know, once again, also is not really taking responsibility, you know, for making the thing work, just kind of managing their own little fiefdoms and trying not to, um, you know, get too much work or too much, you know, blame shifted onto them. And she's trying to work her way through that situation. Um, you know, so it, it, uh, we wanted, yeah, I mean, we, we want readers that are really along for the ride with the characters. Cause I think it's going to really go somewhere with the characters. We've got a lot of great ideas, um, and this first, um, this first, you know, set of five that'll eventually end up in a trade paperback is moving toward the launch of this new model. So that's kind of the arc of this first one. Um, and then we'll, and then we'll go from there. All right. Uh, Mike had gotten onto the, uh, artist. You said his name was Jeffrey. I, I liked his art style because it reminded me of an artist from the sixties. I don't know if you know him, a Roy Lichtenstein. He was yeah. a really big with uh wham drowning girl masterpiece uh that that stylized art really brought me into aerotech because i i like that art style you definitely hit it hard with that 60s art style there and you i nailed it i really That's really exactly liked what it. we're going for yeah yeah so we talked about how you know in terms of time we were saying okay this comic book is set what we were saying was five minutes in the future. So we have technology we don't have today, but the world is completely recognizable. We're not doing some, you know, crazy futuristic thing. But then when we talked about the the corporate world and particularly this kind of toxic male dominated corporate world that Samantha finds herself in, um, you know, we kind of went right back to Mad Men and, you know, and that, that kind of 1950s, 1960s corporate mentality and like you said, with the Roy Lichtenstein and just the bright colors of the pop art, I think Jeff's got a great sense of color. Um, and so um, the colors are really bright and vibrant and, you know, not always realistic. You know, they're, they're more, the colors are, can be a little more um, evocative of a mood or a tone or an emotion. Um, and yeah, absolutely. You just nailed it. That was exactly what we were going for. Yeah, I really liked it. And I, I love the art style. Especially how you were saying that the colors really pop, you know, reds, bright colors, Chauvet, you know, a surprise or, or you know, a, a bang, so to speak, within the comic strips. And um, I, I, I think it's I think it's a great art style. I think it's a great comic. I, I'm really looking forward to series two. Great. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have a little surprise for you because in the next Kickstarter, we're doing um uh, sort of a, not a, par well, yeah, sort of a parallel story. Um, and it's, uh, the next full blown Aerotech comic is going to be, um, in January of next year. But in the meantime, we've got, um, an Aerotech story for you, which, um, is going to be sort of a parallel narrative. And, and that narrative is going to slam into the Aerotech narrative down the road. So, um, we are running, um, these, these two, these two comics with Aerotech, um, and, uh, so we don't leave our readers six months without anything new to read. There will be something available um, like September, October to get to get uh, to just keep people interested before we get to the next uh, Aerotech issue. Because the Aerotechs, they, they take a lot. I mean, we really, um, you know, Jeff did an ash can of the whole thing and we were going over it panel by panel and kind of fine tuning the jokes and fine tuning a lot of stuff. And then he did all the inks and, you know, he's doing all the coloring and he's doing all the lettering. So um you know, having one person do that, it's a lot of work and it takes a lot of time. So unfortunately, um, that's the one thing about, about these is that it's, it's probably like three or four months between each issue for 
uh, Woodstake and Killing Machine, and and probably more like five or six months between each issue for Air Attack. But um, well, I mean, but we're going as fast as we can. Yeah, exactly. You guys are you got two you know independent artists each one. You got your own writers on each one. I'm sure the logistical alone are enough to be uh, enough to you know postpone a faster delivery. But I mean, with enough Kickstarters and eventually. Um, I was hoping to ask you if you were ever going to do hard copies in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Really looking forward to next year. I'm hoping by the end of the year to have the trade paperback or the, you know, however we do the compendium of all of Woodstake and, you know, maybe by the end of next year, if not by, you know, probably beginning of the middle of the following year, we'll have the killing machine. Um, and Aerotech not too long after that, because yeah, I'm really looking forward to having, um, the full story where someone can buy the full story because unlike, you know, your typical comic where you go to the comic book store and every month you're getting a new issue and, um, you know, the, the story continues, we are asking people to wait longer for these. And I, I do think it'll be really satisfying to hold the whole thing in your hand. Oh yes, I know yeah, I will I'll, find it very satisfying. Great idea. Yes. Uh, yeah. Putting it all together in one, one paperback. That's great. That's exactly what I was hoping you were going to say, too, because uh, to me, I mean, the digital is good. Everyone does it now. It's just, but then nothing's going to be an actual, you know, physical copy in your hand. And then it's a collector's item on top of that. Well, I, I still collect hardbacks. Yeah. Like, if there's a hardback copy of a book that mm-hmm. I can grab, I'm absolutely for it. I yeah. love paperbacks, too, but I, if you ever do do, like, an omnibus, so to speak, of a full compilation, if you were to do a, a hardback, you'd have a buyer mm-hmm. right now. <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, you can do that these days with print-on-demand, and um, it's, you know, it's, um, what I'm understanding is it all comes down to volume. How much volume are you printing, right? So if, um, I mean, how many buyers of a hardback would I have? Mm-hmm. I don't know, and what would be the price point? But if you can do it print-on-demand um, and do, you know, and so the margins are small, but who cares? You're You're getting something that a fan really wants into their hands yeah so, and if you great. get enough of them out and then people ask for more do it again <laughs> yeah maybe maybe you can print a few more and mm-hmm. get a little higher margin off of it exactly i really like that uh that aspect you just pointed out those is that regardless of what the margins are you know getting something into a fan's hand is what matters yeah and um yeah i'm all about the storytelling i, I really believe in these stories and these artists and i just want to get them out like I, you know we're not going to get rich off of this stuff, but <laughs> let's get good stories. Let's put them together and let's find people that want to read them. And, and you that's, know, you know, I find this so satisfying creatively. It's just great. Exactly. It's it's nice to hear you say that too. It's not about just about the money. It's about getting your, the stories you want to tell out and how you enjoy doing everything, not just being forced to do it or feeling forced to do it or feeling like the story has been forced. It's it's nice to do it that you're doing something that you enjoy in an organic way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Complete creative freedom, right? It's like, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, what I'm really trying to do is cover my costs, right? So I'm not losing <laughs> exactly. money on it so I can look my wife in the eye. <laughs> <laughs> happy wife, happy life. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> now, uh, there was a third book that you had brought up earlier with Mike, which was The Killing Machine. Can you uh, talk to us a little bit about that and what really... Uh... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Leftovers. Or... The DMV. Number 97. Or... House cleaning. Or... Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Influence you with that story? Yeah, so the killing machine. Um, uh, yeah, well, let me tell you what it is first, and I'll tell you about my influences. Um, so, um yeah, this one's going to be really interesting. It's really aiming to be um, kind of a good, really good blend of cerebral science fiction, like science fiction with a big idea. Because that's, I, I, that's what I really like about science fiction is, um, yes, you have all of the kind of, you know, action and fun and, and everything else that you have in other genres. But science fiction is where you can probe like the big questions, like the nature of life or, you know, the nature of life in the universe or, you know, whatever. And so this one... Um, uh, it's a big story and it's going to take, I've been telling people it's going to take like three issues before the scope of the story is revealed. Um, because there's just so much you can do in, in 28 pages. Um, but, uh, um, so it's, it, it is hard to summarize. Like I always like talking about Woodstake cause I can say it's a vampire at Woodstock yeah. and then everybody knows what it's about, or, mm. you know, it's about a company that makes sex robots and everyone knows what it's about. Um, <laughs> You know, so but this one is um, is uh, um, the first issue starts off with um, a um, an autonomous robotic commander. So a, uh, you know, sort of an A.I. robotic commander leading uh, uh, a mission, you know, sort of in a in a foreign galaxy. And we don't we don't know a whole lot about the nature of the mission. Um, And um, there's a lot about the, um, you know, about the A.I., but there's also, you know, sort of a a lot of action and, and his Lieutenant um, Lieutenant Coney is sort of the the major character in the first issue, um, and uh, in a way, I was inspired with that. I, I was a big fan of. Uh, do you guys know the Horatio Hornblower novels? Mm, no, they're actually. kind of like yeah, they're great novels. They're Napoleonic War uh, epics written by a guy named C.S. Forrester, okay. and uh, Hornblower is the the intrepid captain. Um, but he has his uh, lieutenant, Lieutenant Bush, and they um, they have this great relationship, and they're through all of these adventures together. And that was um, that was a big inspiration for the the sort of robotic commander and the lieutenant. Um, actually, Gene Roddenberry, I believe, was a big fan of the C.S. Forrester novels. Um, uh, so, um, but they're you know definitely from another generation. Uh, in the second issue, you realize we realize what more the nature of this. Um, mission is and so um uh in the second issue it's revealed that we found um this object you know deep deep um underwater um that as- appears to be responsible for um creating some of the um basic building blocks of life on earth so based some of the basic amino acids and other things that lead to life on earth which um people begin to call this object the hand of god um because it it appears to be the thing that seeded life um on on the earth and so you know is it is it something that was deliberately put there was it put there by an alien race is it some kind of galactic spore um you know et cetera et cetera are sort of the questions that that it deals with um but eventually it turns out that there are 
sort of three of these objects that are in sort of a quantum relationship with each other. And that's what um, brings these, these uh, different races and these different galaxies together. So like I said, it's a big story. It's a hard yeah. story to yeah. summarize, um, but it's got a lot of action. Um, and, uh, and I think by the time um, I really get, you know, I'm writing, uh, I'm writing the end of issue three right now. And I have four and five sketched out and I'm really excited about it. Um, I, I still have not figured out how to talk about it, like how to give the elevator pitch. Um, but, um, but I'm really excited about it because I think it is going to be kind of a unique um, science fiction with a really, you know, with a really interesting idea. And it's going to have a great cliffhanger at the end of the first book. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. I will definitely put issue one in your hands, um, you know, right after this call. Yeah. Um, and we'll uh, I'd love it. to hear your thoughts on it. And also, you guys should uh, send me your, your mailing address, and I'll put physical copies in your hands because oh, awesome. I'd love you to have the actual right. comics. Your, yeah. uh, your, your little snippet of that story reminded me a lot of uh, a 2001 Space Odyssey is what popped in my head of where they were able to find a monolith. Mm-hmm. And I remember in that film, Stanley Kubrick's film, uh, they show like a prehistoric like belt so to speak with the humans and they find this monolith that teach them how to use weapons and spears and stuff and it was kind of like the precursor of you know intelligence mm-hmm. you know uh i forget the name of the god who gave man fire like that that type of prometheus. prometheus prometheus yeah it was like a prometheus thing and um anything that deals with like ai and robots so, and stuff like blade runner-esque like i love that stuff too like this is so what i'm getting from what your description is it's a slow burn with a big payoff that's what i hope and, yeah. and you totally nailed it with 2001 so yeah the, for me thematically um you know it's about sort of the nature of life and and why the ai is there um, you know, is that it, it really, what is the nature of life? If it, if it looks like and acts like a human being, what is that spark? Is there a spark of life? Something that, um, you know, that sense of, uh, of soul or something beyond, um, you know, just, uh, functionally being, uh, being a fun, you know, functionally being like a, a human a being as opposed to having some kind of spark of life. So the AI is there thematically as well, the kind of, um, get at that question of the nature of life, but you totally nailed it with 2001 because I was definitely an influence. And there is also a, uh, kind of a reference to it because that monolith that they visit in space is, um, near one of the moons of Jupiter. I think it's IO. And, yeah. uh, so yes, the, the, the hand of God object eventually leads, um, leads them to, uh, sort of a portal to this other galaxy where these alien races. Um, and that is on, uh, outside of another moon of Jupiter. And that's kind of an homage to 2001 because definitely 2001 was, was formative for me, both the the book and the movie. Um, what's great is if you read the Arthur C. Clarke book, um, you know, there's a lot more, um, uh, just a lot more content, um, and ideas, science fiction ideas in it. The Kubrick film is brilliant, but, um, but Kubrick is much more about, you know, sort of image and cinema than he is about, um, you know, all of the content of the book. So that's one where I would definitely read it as well as see it because there's some great ideas in there. Uh, you also were kind of getting on to, you know, the the issue of morality and freedom and, and identity with AI. I uh, also piqued my interest with that as well, because I remember Blade Runner, that, that being a, a huge theme of that movie and of that story of, you know, these replicants are man-made and they act like humans, 
they talk like humans, they think like humans, but they're not treated as humans. They're mm-hmm. they're treated as an object. Exactly. They're they're treated as a device that can. Now you got well in his story, you have an AI discovering the origin, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> right. What does he do with that? I mean, he's programmed by another origin of lifetime, so he's like a, a a kid of a kid from the original. So you meet Grandpa basically. Yeah. <laughs> did you uh, did you have any Blade Runner? Mm-hmm. Uh, Obsession, a- inspiration, yeah. so obsession. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. yeah, I, I did. See yeah, I love Blade Runner. Um, yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's fo- so funny. We saw that movie. So, uh, Star. I was what was I? I was eleven when Star Wars came out, and yeah, it just blew our minds. And I think Blade Runner came out maybe three years later, nineteen eighty. And so I was like mm-hmm. fourteen, and we all went to it thinking it was going to be like Star Wars. And at first, <laughs> we were like, "What the heck what is, is this? this?" Like we. And then, but then I, you know, I kind of liked it, but at 14, I didn't really get it. Um, no. But then I went back to it many times and then really Scott d- released the director's cut. Yes. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, no, that's a movie I, I really love. And, and I love, you know, um, there, there's a, a scene in this, Richter is the name of my AI. And there's a scene where he's discussing, um, you know, kind of, uh, um, you know, metaphysics or, you know, the nature of life with his creator. And so, you know, there's definitely, I, you, you have to have the scene where the AI, the Rutger Hauer confronts his creator, right? It's um, uh, the robot who is in some ways superior to the human that created him. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of Blade Runner in there as that, well. That uh, reminds me of a Roy Batty <clears throat> walking up and talking to Terrell and, you know, trying to trying to figure out how that you know he can prolong his life how he can you know not die prematurely and i like yeah exactly he was sitting there and he's constantly you know throwing out these ideas that he has as as an extremely smart uh superhuman so to speak and you know terrell's like it's not possible you know we've already tried that you know genetics genetics like i really liked how within that story uh, Terrell really saw the replicants as, you know, beings that fell from the heavens. If I remember correctly, that was a quote that he had. And, uh, there is, there's a lot of strong Christian allegory within that film to them being fallen angels, especially with Zora and Batty and the things that they say and the things that they do and how within the book and within the, uh, the movie, they really emphasize, um, you know, thinking outside of the box, thinking within like a biblical aspect. What did you really see within that movie that really pulled you into doing the screenplay or not so much the screenplay, but doing the hand of God? Yeah, well, that's really what you just said is really insightful. And um, yeah, I, I thoroughly agree with that. And that's, you know, sort of why the the hand of God's, you know, title is in there for the for the whole story, because you can't talk about um, the nature of life or creation without thinking about religion, um, or, um, but, uh, you know, or, um, not any specific religion per se, but just the nature of, um, creation, right? So to, to, for this, it, it would be interesting, this robot meets his creator and the creator is inferior to him in another way, in many ways, right? Not as strong, probably not as smart, um, and, and can't solve the key problem of his existence. So is ultimately not useful to him. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's also, um, I, I think what I, what I liked about that movie so much, um, you know, all, all of the robot characters were, were, uh, 
coming up against their limitations. Um, so I forget the Sean Young character. I forget her robot character, but the one that Harrison Ford falls in love with. And she's had all of these memories implanted into her and actually believed she was a human. Um, and like the, the curtain is dropped and she is, she realizes that she's not, not actually a human and everything that she believed was an actual memory was, was just an implant. Um, and so all of these sort of created beings, they run into the limitations of, of their own existence because of they were created by humans. And, and that there's something very poignant about, about all of that. Um, and uh, I think that's that's partially what what uh, you know appealed to me. Other than the fact that it's just such a beautiful movie, oh, um, you know, it, it's just so visually arresting um, and was just so cool um, in the day. And it definitely took me several viewings to appreciate it. The uh, the instance of how you were explaining and how you were describing of how they were coming up against their limitations also goes in such strong parallel with how they uh, ended up rebelling against their creator that they weren't happy with that i know uh with roy batty watching him within the film um i had recently re-watched that film because i had seen that blade runner was a uh a huge influence for you and i liked how uh batty would misquote you know certain biblical sayings Uh, there was a scene in the film where uh he misquotes an old English poet by the name of William Blake who says, fiery, the angels fell. When the original is fiery, the angels rose. And it was from a prophetic book that Blake had written. And as he ends up going and chasing Deckard near the end of the film, uh, Roy somewhat creates a stigmata by driving a nail through his hand, becoming Christ-like. And at the end of the film, he... In, in his dying moments, you know, he, he's got seconds left to live. He chooses to sacrifice himself to save Deckard. And yeah. um, I also liked how with Zora, I forget the actress's name, um, but I... Daryl Hannah? Daryl Hannah, yes. I remember uh, she, she ended up getting two gunshot wounds in that film, and I believe they were on her shoulder blades. And I liked how that also symbolized like she was an angel who had her wings cut off. And I know within that, uh, within her performance, she uh, utilized like the serpent, so to speak. And, um, that, 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 that subtle nuance of, you know, having that Christian allegory within the film and like, you, you don't see it. It's not right there in front of you, but this, the way that they, show these characters rebelling against their creators. Roy Batty would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. Like there is, there is such a strong emphasis with that, within that movie. And I think that that is what really stands the test of time. And, um, anything that has, you know, Blade Runner, uh, 2001, a space odyssey. Like a lot of these films I think are absolutely timeless. And like the fact that it's influencing you and it's really wanting you to take your time and really deep dive into the killing machine. Like I, I cannot personally wait to get my hands on this comic of yours. I'm very, very yeah, excited. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do is to write something worthy of that kind of thought provoking sci-fi that I, that I, that I love as well. Um, 
you know, so hopefully, yeah, <laughs> hopefully you enjoy it. But I, your 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 thoughts on Blade Runner are really amazing. I had never thought about the clipped wing. Well, that's um, what we do at Nerds here at the Holy Grail. So. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Do. The other thing about the snake is there's that whole scene with the synthetic mm-hmm. snake where he's chasing the woman through the chasing through the marketplace, and there's that synthetic snake and the synthetic snake scales. I mean, I was always thought of thinking about mm-hmm. the Garden of Eden with that one. I never thought so much about. Um, about the Daryl Hannah connection, and I missed the the clipped missed wings. Uh, yeah, I also love the the toy maker, and um, oh, you know yeah. that yeah. that whole relationship between Zora and the it's Zora, right? Is the yeah. character's name? Yeah, and the toy maker is just kind of marvelous, and and that's another um, aspect of of this whole thing is you know he doesn't aspire to create life; he aspires to create companions, right? Um, and uh, and that that's just becoming a really interesting thing is is robots uh, as companions um where they're not fully lifelike or taking on all the you know all of the complexity and weight of being a moral being but simply being you know companions and enjoyable um the the movie is just brilliant in so many ways um yeah i i want to go watch it again <laughs> absolutely <laughs> no, uh, no, quick, quick quick fix pris was Daryl Hannah i believe Zora was um Chris, I, yeah, that's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh Zora, I she was portrayed by Joanna Cassidy. Okay. And thank yeah, you. She she was the one that was uh she went by her stage name of Miss Salome. I do I do want to ask you before we uh we wrap this up. I do want to ask you some personal questions before, you know, cuz we went through the comics. And uh I just want to ask you though what what comics do you normally enjoy outside your own, of course? <laughs> yeah. So, um, kind of my history of comics is, um, leftovers or the DMV or house cleaning Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. T plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I was not like a Marvel DC guy. My, mm-hmm. my, you know, nobody I knew read those. So they, I would have enjoyed them had I got my hands on them. But, you know, it was more like mad magazine, you know, was, okay. was in the house and spy versus spy and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> you know, what me worry. Um, but then, um, for me, I think the one that grabbed me was Watchmen. Um, when I was older, um, I, I, I just picked that up and I was like, Oh my God, like just the sophistication of the, visual storytelling, um, the sort of complexity of the story. And that's where I realized, um, 
you know, uh, well, that and, and Mouse, um, Art Spiegelman's Mouse, I don't know which I got my hands on first. I mean, obviously very, very different books, but, but the sophistication of the storytelling and, the, and, uh, and everything really drew me in. And so I kind of, you know, was a Frank Miller guy, Dark Knight. Yeah. Um, so. And then I fell into some of the indies. Um, you know, um, I liked um, Hellboy and uh, we read Matt Wagner's Mage and, and that sort of thing. I read Daniel Klaus' Eight Ball. Um, so I was kind of an odd duck in my comic history in that I didn't really, you know, I, I just was not a Marvel DC guy. I was not a collector. I didn't, I do not know all the background of those stories. And I, you know, I'm learning now a lot more about the, um, the Marvel and DC artists because they're just so incredible and just going back and, and really appreciating the, the art, the, you know, the art form and how comic art developed from, you know, like Hal Foster and Prince Valiant, you know, forward through the fifties. And, um, so I have a great appreciation for the art, but I, I really don't know the stories. I was definitely more pulled toward the, you know, kind of dark Frank Miller type stuff, and then more of the independent stuff. My um, my wife is the one that's um more of a comic book nerd than I am. Actually, she's she slowly got me into it, and one of her, the only ones we really have like a full collection of is Watchmen, <laughs> and she loves it to death. She's yeah, watched, she's read them comic. all. Yeah, she's read them all. She's got the the whole reprint. She's got the hard copy book, and then she's um she loves the movies. She's got like all 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 versions of it. <laughs> Yeah, and just the scope of that, kind of going from, yeah. you know, gritty gritty street, you know, thing and you know, and, and Rorschach is such a, a breakout character, but then it, it just kind of keeps going deeper mm-hmm. and deeper and then you're end like, you know, where, end up in how far does this you, rabbit hole go? <laughs> how time. far does this rabbit hole go? Yeah. Exactly. It gets very metaphysical and it's mm-hmm. just so cool. He's like, oh, yeah. this was supposed to be a simple telling and then it turned into this grandiose scale, you know world-ending almost um, uh, apocalypse story. Yeah, and you would never have known that never. from the first issue. No, no yeah. not, not at all. But you would have never known that uh, it was also primarily done when he was on LSD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it really makes me think like going into like the late 60s and early 70s, if we went from that golden age to silver age of comics, you know, we, we just had so many people, so many popular comics get into drugs, so to speak. And then mm-hmm. they just became very creative, started using vibrant colors, really started going out there. And then, you know, people were like, okay, well, you know, fans are starting to accept this maybe we can you know be a little bit more bold so to speak with yeah. our brush strokes and so forth but uh, i remember alan moore had a had a good history <laughs> with that i think he got expelled as well yeah <laughs> but um watchman v for vendetta was also yeah. another really really she, good yeah. comic from that series he uh I, if i remember correctly alan moore did some work in um Warrior Magazine and 2000 AD Magazine. Were you ever privy to those magazines or ever read any of the comic strips in those? No, I never. I never encountered those magazines. I think I've heard of them, but I don't think I ever read them. Yeah, I if I remember correctly, the, I, I read them. You know, when I was a little bit younger, with the advent of the internet, you you have access to more things. But I think it was a, a primarily a British comic series. Um, but he, you know, ended up doing a lot more of his prominent work in America. Um, because of that, though, he did get picked up by DC and he was able to do uh, uh, some work on uh, major characters. I believe he also did Batman, the Killing Joke, uh, Superman, whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow. 
Um, like Mike, you were saying earlier on the podcast of how, you know, you, you find an artist and you're so enthralled. You're so vested into yes, what that one comic them, is, yeah. is that you kind of like, okay, well, what other comics do they have? And like, well, I will go down a rabbit hole yeah, at times on certain like, comics. It's a good way to get people in because not everyone likes the same art styles. Yeah. Some people like one art style, but they don't like the other one, but they would never read these unless they got into it. So if they, if you buy drawing them into that one comic, you're opening up the door for the other ones. Yeah, and when your name's on a comic, yeah. I'm more, I'm like, especially you follow, that, yeah. you follow the rabbit hole. Yeah. yeah. And I follow where they go. Oftentimes. Mm-hmm. If I, they... I do have another question for him though. Yeah. Um, Kaiju fan. <laughs> Somewhat. Um, Pacific Rim fam. Oh, <laughs> Pacific Rim. So, yeah. Uh... so yeah, I love that movie. Like I, I'm a big like monster movie fan, honestly. Um, so I was wondering if you're going to do any, comics like that too <laughs> wow i don't i don't have a monster movie uh one but now you got the gears turning uh, i was the creature double feature kid so yeah, like dude, yeah, when I was, yeah every saturday all the bad movies like that too all the good movies no no no, 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 no. there are no bad movies no, listen, and if they're so bad they are good no listen the joke around <laughs> our, our our little nerds of the pod, uh, holy grail podcast is that i i'm the i'm the biggest fan of bad movies <laughs> so i'm like the b movie fan so, but anyways, yeah, like I'm a big Godzilla fan, and so is so is Travis. Oh, yeah. And then we have um, other other favorites like Pacific Rim. You mean Pacific Rim, aka Evangelion live action? Yes. Gotcha. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, I, I went back. Uh, I, I like I so the Criterion Collection is kind of my my go to streaming service, and uh, they had all the Toho movies on, mm-hmm. you know, three or four months ago, like like all, all of them. Of them. Yes. There were. So many of them, like you don't yeah, I mean, I remember a lot of the characters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're uh, just, and uh, I remember, uh, you know, a kid's memory of Creature Double Feature. But it was fun to go back. Like I went back and watched the original Godzilla, and you know, I watched Destroy All Monsters, and but yeah. then I just watched, just you know, kind of sampled around some some of the ones I hadn't seen before, or heard of before, and that was man. There's just there's just a lot out there. I mean, I'm just saying, though, with your creative storytelling and, you know, and mind-provoking thought, I think you could come up with a good creature feature. <laughs> yeah, that would be fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, speaking of which, with Toho, they uh, they they went into a completely different direction with their uh, Godzilla series, within Japan at least, yeah. while the U.S. had their, you know... Hollywood Godzilla, the was, legendary uh, productions. Yeah, yeah they. Uh, have you seen the Shin Godzilla movie series? No. Oh um, yeah, that was good. So Shin Godzilla, I like the movie because it it portrays a, a bigger happenstance with what would happen if Godzilla were to attack Tokyo right now in today's age, and it it shows just how bureaucratic every little thing is. Is that they can't yeah. make a defensive. It, option without having to go through their boss who goes through their boss. It up, it's basically like you watch the bureaucracy fail to handle a, a crisis situation yeah. it's really that's what that movie's about is watching bureaucracy not be able to handle a crisis of that level <laughs> but, when was this movie made what, what uh, year if i remember correctly a couple this, of years ago th- yeah this was what 2000 mm-hmm. 2016 or 2017 yeah, yeah. within there um well, yeah. it also shows probably the most animalistic and oh yeah, yeah vicious version of him version of godzilla like mm-hmm. one who who he he's a wild animal and he has a genetic mutation where he's he's rapidly evolving he's rapidly growing and yeah then, it goes from like a smaller creature to a larger creature yeah. rapidly fast and the government can't handle it 
and, and they, then, they try uh, to figure it out. But this sounds and, like a metaphor for climate change. Exactly. Oh no, no, yeah, it, yeah, it, it yeah. was a, it was a really strong one. But mm-hmm. they, the 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 I will say though the the ending sequence of that film when I watched it was mm-hmm. one of the only the music too the music the, the the sequencing that they were doing for it with the NFC and Godzilla is one of the only films that I have finished watching and I got chills at the end because it it it, it inserted a very terrifying thought with me yeah. that if they hadn't done what they were what trying they to do yeah. and they had failed like they would have been really really screwed moving forward and like Shin Godzilla was probably one of the best monster flicks I've seen Godzilla films all around like easily uh, it's, on, five it's, on, it's five. on the top of my list right now <laughs> oh, absolutely absolutely um I do I know we went through some sci-fi movies that you did like um and we went into detail with some of them already on our podcast but is there any other ones that might have uh, been a good a uh, big influence on you that's a good question. Um, I'm sure there are. I'm trying to draw yeah. something to yeah, mind. We, we've been um, boggling your mind now for a bit. So if yeah, I, I mean, I do like some of the 50s sci-fi, and I, I really like um, yeah, I get a lot from of another world, from which is yeah, which is you know kind of a, a sci-fi horror. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I really like. Um, uh, um, come on, Sean, well, make the um, brain work. I'll put it this way: the Body Snatchers. Oh, yes, oh my there we god, go. yeah, such yeah. a good movie, yeah, especially yeah. the ending. Oh, oh my yeah. god! Yeah. And then I was—that was, I was, that was Donald. Donald Sutherland was in that movie, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's so he's yeah. The that's the remake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, that the re- yes, that, that that's not the original, but yeah, I, that yeah. one was there. Now, um, I did have a question though too. Also, was there any chance because of your inspiration from those older classic or uh, sci-fi, um, any kind of like Johnny Quest? In the works too. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny Quest was on Saturday morning every time, yep. <laughs> every 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 Saturday. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I have no I have no Johnny Quest in the works. Okay, um, <laughs> I was just wondering because it, it's up that yeah. alley. I remember the classic, uh, you know, all the robots, the, the crazy sci-fi looking stuff, and it, it was all because I, I I remember watching those as a kid because they were on as reruns. So I was like, when I was trying to think. Well, like he he wants he, he says he has a lot of inspiration from the older sci-fi movies. I'm like, what do I remember? I'm like, I remember a lot of Johnny Quest, <laughs> right? The older classic ones where he's he's constantly coming up with plans and stuff like that. Yeah. But it's good. I mean, I, I'm I'm all for the classic sci-fi. Um, actually, he did have a you you said that you grew up watching primarily a lot of black and white films. Uh, there was a video that you had, or it may have been a podcast where you were talking about some influences and you did bring up Kurosawa at one point. Yeah, I, I really did the deep dive on, on Japanese movies and samurai movies at one point. Um, so yeah, I mean, I definitely am a cinema geek. Um, and, uh, so I love Japanese cinema, particularly, um, you know, sort of the post-war period in fifties and sixties was just an amazingly, uh, amazing period creatively. Um, but Japan has a deep history with, with film, you know, going back to the mm-hmm. silence. Um, but yeah, um, Kurosawa and the samurai movies. And, uh, it, uh, that's what I was, I had forgotten to mention one of the original inspirations for Richter, the, the, the cyborg or the, the AI in the killing yeah. machine, the original, original idea was that, um, it was this, you know, sort of a robotic warrior that, uh, had sort of gotten detached after the war and was just wandering around the galaxy like purposeless, yeah. like a Ronin. Yeah. yeah so That's kind awesome. of like an AI Ronin. Nice. Um, yeah. 
Uh, that's good. I'm um, I'm excited to read uh, read it when you uh, we finally right. get it. Like, get, get a little uh, Yojimbo in mm-hmm. there. Exactly. Awesome. Well, I I I for one absolutely love having you on this podcast. Um, and we and, and enjoyed our interview with you today. And we'd love to get you on later for your uh, updates on your on that would be great no this has been really fun you guys are like so much fun to talk to and you, you know all <laughs> that's what we stuff. aim for you are, so. you are the nerds of the holy grail now yeah. i now i know that that title is earned <laughs> yes exactly we don't just you know we all we all love uh, certain aspects and that's why between the two of us we uh we cover all the fields <laughs> yeah. i cover everything good movie wise and hey, mike hey, covers hey, hey. you know <laughs> troll hunter yes i'm the troll hunter <laughs> and, and and don't get me wrong i love my b-rate horror films like tremors tremors yeah. is an a-ranked movie in my eyes yeah same here. oh i love tremors Tre- yeah, yeah exactly yeah kevin bacon absolutely uh, the original tremors all yeah. the way i watched all no of no, them. no no that's where we differ because yeah. i've seen up to like tremors three i watched the recent ones and then he's watched like <laughs> tremors 27 with bert i think bert's the only character that's left yep <laughs> that's you dude don't judge me. <laughs> I just thought that the concept of that movie, it was just a brilliant movie. Like, the, mm-hmm. you know, the idea that if you're on rock, you're unsafe. And if you're on sand, it can hear you. And so they had to cross, yeah. the, the you know, cross over. It was just such a great idea. There's always that and it was so tense about something you can't see hunting you. <laughs> exactly. Kind of like pitch black. Mm-hmm. Oh, Predator. don't even get me started. Pitch black oh, yeah. is, I think, mm-hmm. one of like my favorite. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sci-fi movies that has come out in recent years. I remember, if I remember correctly, that was a that was a Sci-Fi Channel movie. I don't remember Pitch Black coming out in the theaters. Um, yeah, oh, that's did. interesting. I found that movie late. Um, I, I found it like uh, probably I, I don't know when it came out, but I, I found it you know well yeah, after it, it had its initial run. Yeah, the the Chronicles of Riddick. Chronicles series. of Riddick afterwards. Yeah, yeah. And, and then uh, I, I our uh, friend here, Joa, who you know helps record and does the rest of our podcast. Uh, the, the real, the real brains. The real brains behind everything. <laughs> um, I, I I constantly talk to him. I love sci-fi horror. Sci-fi horror is one of my favorite genres of film, and one of my all-time favorite movies is Event Horizon. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, I saw Event Horizon with great uh, movie. Yeah, Sam Neill and Lawrence Fishburne, and um. I was I was explaining to him. I don't know if you're into uh, like Warhammer at all or the Warhammer universe. I do not know the Warhammer universe. Uh, a lot of the I, I fail. <laughs> I fail. <laughs> uh, it's all right. Man. A lot of that universe. Is I don't like, know it either. So I'm a lot right of that universe you. comes down <laughs> to you know when they were able to figure out warp travel. It wasn't so much that they were able to go from point A to B in space, but they went they through another. Time. They went through another dimension, yeah. which cause a rift and you know all these creatures ended up coming out and they created the whole warhammer mythos and um i, I always tell my friend joe here that uh that, that's a precursor that's like the prequel to warhammer <laughs> <laughs> but anyways um we do enjoy you coming over onto our podcast uh, appreciate your time and effort and uh for our listeners this is shp comics um check out his website sp uh shpcomics.com and and so, uh, sign up for his comics. Do his he's, kickstarters. He's, he's Kickstarter. Gonna... He's got a he's got a Patreon going. Mm-hmm. Uh, he do you now? Here, here's a here's a quick question. Do you actively update um, videos on YouTube? I have not lately. I'm trying to. I'm I, although part of me is um, 
Yeah, there's just so many different channels. Yeah. I'm trying to stay focused on creating comic books. Like, um, yeah. you know, uh, so uh, the YouTube channel has gone without a little bit of love <laughs> for a while. Um, but uh, I would like to at some point. But um, yeah, I just felt like I was getting too spread out. And like what I need to do is write we, and produce comic we books. We totally get it because we're doing the same thing. <laughs> so so, so if, I, if you don't mind me asking you, what's the best way for fans to get a hold of you? Uh, well, uh, shpcomics.com, honestly, the best thing that would be to um, sign up for the mailing list. Um, I don't mail very often, but you'll know about Kickstarters. Yes. Um, you can buy the comics, um, hard copies, um, and collector's editions, variants, all that kind of stuff is on the website. Um, but, um, yeah, shpcomics.com is probably the best or, um, you know, whatever. We're on, we're on all the social networks, but um, ideally just come to the website. Awesome. We'll make sure we put a link in for you. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate that. No problem. Awesome. All right. And uh, this has been another podcast of Nerds of the Holy Grail. Um, nice talking to you all. We'll see you next time. Have a good night.